0: Hello and welcome, to Control Alt Delete, a stress relieving podcast that now features an hour of spin time.
1: <laughs>
0: that intro, I got. I'm going to be honest with the audience; it's a bit of a cheat. That intro comes from our producer Peter Leonard, who has been threatening to send an intro this entire time. <laughs> he finally, did he's at he's at PETA plays bass on Twitter. I'm Neil Patel, the editor in chief of The Verge. I'm joined as always, and sadly for the last time in this format, by my friend. The incomparable, the Waltercation himself, Walt Mossberg. How's it going, Walt?
1: It's a little sad, I. It's a little sad. It's it's, it's gratifying because we've done, what, this is the 75th of these, right? We,
0: by sheer coincidence, this is our 75th episode of Control-Walt-Delete. It is also kind of the last one.
1: Kind of. We're going to explain why it's only kind of. But. So
0: I, we've been promising for weeks now that the actual last episode would be very special. So this, is, this, our 75th episode, is the last episode in this form. Walt and I just talking over Skype, hanging out. It's Walt's last column. That's what we're going to be talking about today. His last column ever. So this is the last of this. Walt writes a column. We record a podcast. But on June 9th, right after WWDC... We're going to be live. We're gonna we're renting out the School of Visual Arts, the Theater at the School of Visual Arts. Uh, we're going to have people in the audience. We'll have in New York City.
1: New York sp- explain City. Explain what city.
0: Evening of June 9th in New York City. You can get tickets. You can come see us. And we're going to have our man, Dieter Bone, on stage with us. So there's the three of us. One last live control-alt-delete. I'm so excited about it. Uh, and it's going to be great. There will be a post on The Verge. ASAP with all the details you need for tickets and all that sort of thing. But just keep this in your mind. The last, the truly last Control-Alt-Delete, episode 76, June 9th, School of Visual Arts, New York City.
1: Not only do you get to see Dieter, yes. not only do you get to see Neeli, but I just fade away after that.
0: So it's actually gonna be the back last to the future. time
1: anyone will ever see me. He's,
0: he's gonna, we're going <laughs> to fade him out on stage. It's going right. to be amazing. Uh, but that, Walt, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, that will be your last act before fully retiring. That's the last thing you're going to do.
1: Right. It would be my it's not my actual retirement date. That comes a couple weeks later, but that will be my my last actual editorial act yeah. at, at here at here at the Verge, here at Recode, here at Fox Media.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This episode 75. Actually, it should be 75 episodes and one one special episode. We shouldn't yeah. call that 75. Let's do that. But this our final episode 75. I would say it, it, well, I read your column. It's Walt's last column. It's up on the site. You should go read it. It's about sort of the past into the future and what's to come. I had a little misty eye reading it, man. Uh, I, I, had, I had feelings. I don't think people who listen to this show know that I have feelings. I don't think I, <laughs> I had an <laughs> honest to God emotion.
1: He's not a robot. <laughs> you know, those things, those things that say, Check this to show you're not a robot. Well, he's not a robot.
0: Yeah. Um, I can fill out any CAPTCHA at any time. But basically your argument, and you should go through it, is we're in a lull. We've talked about the lull a bunch of times on the show. But that lull is about to – we're about to come out of it. It's not clear when. You say you think by the end of 10 or 20 years all of computing will be different. But you really think there's a a huge paradigm change coming at us.
1: Right. So if I were to simplify what I tried to say – it would be something like this. When I started uh, writing my columns, my weekly columns, I don't know how many weeks I've done these since 1991, October of 1991. You know, for the first many years that I did it, uh, computers and technology devices and software and services in the broadest sense for consumers were in your face. They were a thing. They were, you know, wonderful to use. They opened the world to you in a lot of ways. They gave you a lot of powers that you didn't used to have. Uh, but they were in your face. They had to be dealt with. They had to be maintained. They had to be figured out. They had to be fixed and tweaked and all of these things. And and I think, despite many problems that we've talked about in all of these episodes of this podcast, and. And that you can read about every day, that the, this has been a net good for society, for the world. But I also think that we, have, we are about to enter a phase where the, the computer and the technology are basically about to disappear. They'll be there, they'll be more powerful than ever, but they're just going to melt into your everyday environment in the form of sensors, in the form of You know, uh, everyday objects – I mean drywall, for instance, in the rooms of your house or your office can be smart. It can have all kinds of sensors in it. It can tell how many people in the room and adjust the temperature properly. It can – you know, might even have medical uses in hospitals and uh, uh, other places. Uh, Carpets, augmented reality glasses that look like glasses, not giant goggles – The technology will just be all around you. And I I think uh, I use the term, and it's not my term, but it's a term I like. I I use the term ambient computing. Computing is going to be ambient. I don't mean that you'll never have something like a phone or a laptop, although I don't know in 20 years what what, what those will be. But I think, you know, instead of having to pick up your phone to do certain things, you're going to be able to uh, just walk into a room. Or into uh, out onto a, a, the street and do certain things uh, without the need to pull something out of your purse or your pocket, without the need for a laptop. And when I say ten or twenty years, Nila, uh, I mean, I think, I think, for some of these things to get complete, like you know, a, a critical mass of enough artificial intelligence or machine learning or augmented reality in a great. Form it will it will be will happen within the next ten years, and then even more will happen within the next twenty years. But I don't mean that nothing is going to happen. I think we are in this funny lull now, where everything is going on in the labs and tons of things. I mean, every company you can think of, and many that you don't know of, and we don't know of, are spending a huge amount of money and 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 God knows how many person hours trying to get this done. But what's hitting the consumer market, I think the cadence of great cool things hitting the consumer market has slowed down while all this is building up ahead of steam. Yeah. And I think and I think you're going to begin even though I think it's a 10-year deal, it's a 20-year deal. I think you're going to begin to see the fruits of it in two or three years. And and then it will accelerate. Yeah, you know, I mean accelerate I- over the decade.
0: You know, it's funny because I think listeners know, Walt sort of invented the form of personal technology journalism. It didn't exist before. And Walt, famously, your first line was, computers are too hard to use and it's not your fault. And the focus on the consumer experience of all of these products was very new when you started doing it. Years later, right, 10 years later, uh, 15 years later, we started gadget blogging. And that was, I think, a moment of extreme excitement in innovation when people knew what we were talking about. And I could write – this is always the example I use, but it, uh, I feel like it's very true. I could write 200 words about a new SD card, and we would get 300 comments about it unengaged. Yeah. Uh, and there was just a moment when it looked like the curve of technology had accelerated, and we were absolutely not in the lull. We were in the highest point of excitement – because everyone thought they knew what was going to happen and then the iPhone came out and the entire the the the, the curve accelerated faster than anyone ex- even could have imagined because everyone saw what the thing was capable of right it was obvious on its face what the iPhone was going right. to do maybe not that first iPhone but when the app store hit it was obvious on its face what was going to happen to computing and the level of excitement and then combined with The ease of use of that device meant that all kinds of other people could participate. And so that was the moment when, you know, we were able to start The Verge on the back of a podcast about playing with our phones. And you think about that curve now and what's happened is we've hit the peak of not entirely all the things a phone can do, but it's easy to see the limits of what the phone is able to do. And all the stuff – like the phone can't be the drywall Right. The smart drywall in your house. The phone no. can't contain every sensor. You have to put the sensors elsewhere. The entire world of Internet of Things gadgets, they all connect to the phone, but they have to be out of the phone. And I, I think we're just at that other moment. And I, I'm curious, like, what do you think that next kind of technology experience, technology journalism looks like, having gone through those huge spikes in interest and in, in, in momentum?
1: Well, I think I think ambient computing and its stages the stages that lead up to ambient computing are going to be so amazing that it'll be another cycle of oh my god you know it'll be another cycle of super excitement for consumers for enterprises for the industry and for the journalists who write about it and it will it will carry with it all, and I point this out in the, in the column. Uh, it will carry with it even greater and, and more vast privacy and security uh, implications than the things we have now. It will carry with it, I think, concern about this oligopoly of five companies now. I don't know. Maybe the, there'll be a company that comes out of nowhere and joins that group. So there'll be six or seven. I don't know. But a small you know, concentration of power and so I think there'll be some negatives to it, but I think it's going to upend the world. The way the – I mean, you know, look, Pete, you can divide the era of personal computing or personal technology any way you want. But I divide it into, you know, you have the, the arrival of the PC, the mass market PC, starting in 1977 but really not taking off till the 90s. You have the internet, which started in the 90s but, but really took off in the 2000s. Then you have the smartphone that uh, – the real smartphone, the multi-touch smartphone that started in 2007 and which uh, you know, didn't take very much time at all, I think, to take off. But clearly has now you know, reached a kind of level of maturity 10 years later. And those are the big inflection points. There are many, many things in between there including by the things you mentioned, like SD cards. And, you know, I mean, storage has changed tremendously. The cloud has been an amazing thing. All these things have happened. I think there is this little lull now. It doesn't mean, by the way, that there aren't going to be any new products this holiday season. I just think they'll be more iterative than revolutionary. Uh, and then I think this ambient computing thing, driven by AI, driven by machine learning uh, – which includes augmented reality, mixed reality, which includes an enormous health component, which includes transportation, you know, things that haven't changed in many decades, um, this is all going to just explode. And the reason this isn't going to happen in one or two years, and the reason I say 10 years or 20 years, is it's going to take time for all this to filter through society. And, I mean, take cars, uh, you know, People tend to minimize the problem, I think, of autonomous driving. We're moving very fast toward that, and it's an amazing thing to watch. But to get to the point where it saturates your transportation um, habits involves a lot of regulation or deregulation or whatever you want to call it. It involves smart roads. It involves reconfiguring cities and highways not just the cars themselves. It will involve trial and error. There'll probably be some buddy that makes an autonomous car where the cars go crazy. I hope this doesn't happen, but it, it wouldn't surprise me. Just some one company who's one model car that somebody screws up and it goes crazy and it has to be, so that knocks you back to a few squares. But we're going to get there. Yeah. I, I just think I just think this is going to change the world As much as these other things have or maybe more.
0: You know, As you bring this stuff up, what occurs to me – and I I just keep coming back to that iPhone moment because it was such a moment. The iPhone was a product that you could buy as a consumer and the whole world was changing around it. But really you ended up organizing – radically reorganizing your life around this one piece of personal technology. You used it more and more. You suddenly had access to the internet on the go. The phone got more capabilities every time you added a new app to it. But it was inherently like a personal thing. It just happened at scale because so many people individually started making similar choices. When you talk about cars or smart infrastructure and the, or preva- you know, ambient AI that's prevalent everywhere and the right privacy and security regulations need to go with it, those stop being a collection of individual decisions that add up to a movement, right? It, it starts to become all of it has to happen at once or it's not really going to happen very well at all. Um, and that that's a very different way of thinking about technology in our lives. Uh, right? The, the car example that you gave, uh, there are two stories I heard this week. Um, I hung out with the CTO of Ford right before Ford changed CEOs. So I haven't published that interview because I'm pushing them to give me another quote about what he thinks about the new CEO. Um, but he came by the office, Raj Nair, and – you know, Ford is actually really behind. The reason I have a new CEO, they switched. they Mark Fields is out. The new CEO is Jim Hackett. He actually ran their autonomous driving unit, so you see where Ford's priorities are. But I asked him, why don't you have even what you know GM can do or Mercedes can do, not, not Tesla can do, just like level two autonomous driving, which is right. You hit your cruise control, and it it'll follow the road, and you know beep at you every ten seconds. And he goes. Well, how well is that working out for other people? And he was clearly referencing uh, the Tesla accident. And he said, "We don't yeah. want to. We don't want to get into that position. We're, you know, we're Ford. We, we think there's a much safer way, and that's to jump all the way to, to level four. Same time, my brother-in-law is a truck driver, a long-haul truck driver, and uh-huh. <laughs> you know his read on. What is happening with autonomous trucking, which obviously threatens his job, is there's going to be an accident and they're going to need people. And like my job is safe for a long time because the second one of those things crashes, the lawsuits will stop all development. That, to me, that's not I bought a phone and my friend bought a phone and then word of mouth suddenly made everybody buy a smartphone. That is a lot of people saying there's real danger here that will stop this in its tracks because society will not want this technology to to proceed unless – All of the problems are solved.
1: No, look, I think that's exactly right. Let's just imagine that Apple had brought out the iPhone in 2007 and there had been 50 cases of it exploding and catching on fire and burning through the floors of airplanes and all the things that we saw with the Galaxy Note 7 last year. Or let's suppose that there had been uh, reproducible scientific uh, tests that showed that it caused cancer to hold that phone up to your head. (laughs) <laughs> um, and there are some people that believe that but
0: <laughs> yeah, there's study after study that, that says it happening or not happening. Well, most of the
1: studies say it's not yeah. happening but the, but the point is if that had happened in 2007, it might have been a very different story. It's not that they might not have recovered, but who knows what the story would have been lo- looked like. So I'm not trying to put a wet blanket on this. I mean if you when you read the column and I, and I hope you will listeners, um, Give me a break! It's my last column. You could read it, you know. Um, Come on, it's
0: it's my last one.
1: It's 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 not a. Da- I mean, it's an optimistic column, yeah. and I am optimistic. I've always been optimistic about tech, but I've tried to be realistic about it. And so, I think wonderful, great things are in store. I think exciting things are in store for. Consumer personal tech. And by the way, a lot of this is also going to be applicable to enterprise and, uh, you know, big organizations as well. But um, I think there are exciting things in store. I just think it's – you're going to have to wait a little bit. And the truth is you had to wait a little bit for the iPhone. You had to wait a little bit between the Apple II and a computer that really did what you wanted. You had to – you know, between the Apple II and the Mac was seven years And the Mac was phenomenally easier to use and did many more things than the Apple II. But the Mac was primitive. And before you got to a graphical user interface computer that was uh, within your budget and did a lot of stuff was probably Windows 95, those computers. And the Mac was 1984. So there there are big time spans that we forget happened between these things. And so you had Windows 95. And then Microsoft tried tablets, and that was a failure. And then people brought out, brought out things they called smartphones, but they really weren't, and they weren't very smart, and they weren't very good phones. And then in 2007, which was another big time span, you got the iPhone, and then you got the you finally got a good tablet, so good that people don't even replace them. In the iPad in 2010 you know we we have a bunch of smart watches that have not caught on maybe they will i don't know there's a lot of power and technology and and just amazing engineering in those watches but they haven't caught on so you know i just think there are bigger time gaps between these things than we remember and when i say 10 years that is not as shocking as it sounds because you think and most of us journalists think this when we're not being careful and analytical and we're just thinking off the top of our heads we think boom there was there was the mac and then and there was the then there was the immediately the iPod and then there was the iPhone and then there was the iPad and and then, the, you know, and in between there was the cloud that we, you know, there was Amazon cloud services and the Kindle and all these things happen. They, they they happen within a relatively compressed period of our lives, but they didn't happen every other year. It just wasn't that way.
0: Yeah. I think that's actually the most important thing to remember, right? Like these things get made often in isolation and they come out at different intervals and the fact that they all work together over time. It actually takes years and years of refinement and iteration, and so then the next new thing that comes out, it, it often takes a while for it to. Re- you, you remind me about this with the iPhone all the time. At the very beginning, they had to lower the price. It d- it didn't take off right at the start.
1: No, it didn't. Uh, you know, there was a hockey stick effect in, on of, of sales, and there was for the iPod as well. But it did not happen. It's not like. Steve Jobs' reality distortion feel on stage. And the next day, the hockey stick started. It didn't happen. It was sort of flat. It sold, but it was sort of flat. And then maybe in the second or third generation, the hockey stick happened. The same thing with the iPod. And, and, and the iPad was the only one that was different. This is the irony. The iPad whose, fail, whose sales now have fallen for what? Six straight quarters? Am I right about that? Yeah. Some number like that? The iPad had like a rocket shape almost immediately. I believe Mary Meeker, the famous, you know, kind of analyst of all this stuff, who's now a VC at at Kleiner Perkins and who always speaks at our code conference and will do so at the code conference next week, has said that the iPad took off faster than any uh, consumer tech product has ever taken off. I think they sold 200 and something million of them in a very short period of time. And now it's not just flat, but actually declining. So, These things don't have – our memories play tricks on us. But I have a bulletin. Yeah. Can I I deliver my bulletin? I love a bulletin. And you have it too if you're on Slack. So we can say that our special bonus Control-Walt-Delete that will be live in New York on June 9 will be at 6 p.m.
0: 6 p.m., June 9th, featuring special guest Dieter Bohn.
1: Well, yeah. And that's the second or third Dieter Brohm reference already.
0: <laughs> We're just going to keep mentioning him on the show. <laughs>
1: Uh, some people may not believe he exists, although I did post a picture of him. Yeah, on uh, on uh, social media.
0: Well, you posted uh, a picture of both, and uh, you chose CES as for <laughs> as the scene for both photos. Which, <laughs> well, it's just true. Those were the best is.
1: pictures I had of me and you, and me and Dieter. <laughs> they were CES pictures.
0: We're going to have to take some at this last episode taping, right? Uh, so, t- back to ambient computing. Right? I, I don't mean to. I really don't mean to like throw uh, cold water on it. But what I meant to say was we take the time scale for granted right when we look back when we look forward we're often impatient and i i just think it's interesting to to note the difference in how it will appear and the difference in how people are thinking about it right but there there are those concerns right so you brought up privacy and security like how and you say we need real real laws in place like how, how do you see that coming together well he, here's what i think
1: um and <laughs> this risk, getting into your favorite topic.
0: Um, <laughs>
1: but we suffer in the United States from a lack of, of statutes that directly address how we integrate digital things into our lives. And everybody calm down. I'm not saying the government should regulate our use of digital things in a micromanaging way. That absolutely should not be the case. But – everybody knows there's a security issue and everybody knows there's a privacy issue and everybody knows there could be some health issues. Uh, I don't think there are uh, with the devices we have at the moment, but there could be uh, in the future. And um, there are also some fairness issues and some access issues such as net neutrality. And in the EU, they have, have some laws about these things, but in the United States... Uh, we have danced around these things. Uh, there are court decisions. Uh, there's some legal precedent. There are some regulatory agency decisions, which are easily changed, as we're seeing right now, with what the FCC is doing in its rulemaking on net neutrality. And so I one of the things I said in this column, and it's not because I'm a liberal snowflake who wants more laws out of the government, but I just think it's time. It's, it's past time, probably. It is 2017. It is what, 40 years, if my math is right, since 1977? It's a long 50 years, it's a long time. And we need to face this head on. We don't have a privacy law in this country. There may be laws that mention security, but as far as I know, there isn't a direct law about security. And so when the FBI says to Apple, and that by the way, this would be child's play if we really ever get ambient computing, but when the FBI, when the FBI says to Apple, we want you to write a version of iOS just for us. Yeah. And it, by the way, it won't leak. <laughs> and of course, in the last two weeks, we've seen that this ransomware attack that is affecting large parts of the world is based on an exploit that somebody stole from the National Security Agency, which is supposed to be more secure than the FBI. But the FBI says, um, you know, write us an iOS that gives us a back door and lets us o- open a phone, break the passcode on a phone, and it won't leak. Uh, and Apple says no. And, you know, the FBI eventually backed off that because they claimed, and I I don't know if it's true or not, that they got some hacker to do it for them. But the point is we ought to have a law. We ought, we ought to go through our democratic processes and have an actual law that directly deals with this and have a big debate and let – let the security agencies and the corporations that want to invade your privacy argue their case. Let consumer groups and, and, and legal scholars and other people argue the other side of the case and, and have one or more laws that deal with this. And I actually think because this is begun to – one of the reasons I started my column in 1991 was because I thought tech was going to become democratized. It wasn't because there weren't already computers – and there weren't already phones, and there weren't even already, uh, and they were beginning to be some digital cameras, uh, but they hadn't become democratized. Most households didn't have these things, most people weren't dealing with them. And my timing was pretty good. Um, I'm not sure I would ever have that kind of timing again. Um, uh, but if that was a form of democratization, which we've now seen, at least in the developed world, uh, to a great extent, there are now. 2 billion Android devices in monthly active use according to Android, and uh, and that was announced just like a week ago or 10 days ago, and and Apple like a year and a half ago said there are a billion iOS devices in active use. Uh, That's a lot. There's only 7 billion people on the planet. But if we get ambient computing, then we stop even knowing which – where is the computer? Yeah. Is it in the rug? Is it in the drywall? Is it in my shirt? Is it in my arm? Is it where is the computer? Is it in the light fixture? There are lights that have some sort of processor in them right now, or or at least a sensor in them. And, um, you know, where is it? And I think we better figure out a way to decide what happens to the data that's collected by those things, who's liable. If they don 't do what they 're supposed to do, and all of these things, some of it may just be extending existing statute on things like liability, other things may require new thinking, but we 've done none of it in the United States, yeah, none of it
0: and our our current government doesn 't seem entirely capable of having that reason to be
1: no i I agree with you, uh, but um that 's not to say that if if the Congress turned over. And the Democrats took over; that they'd be brilliantly capable either. Um, it's just, I mean, you you, <laughs> you you dance with the government you got,
0: and, <laughs> and
1: and technology. That believe me, all those people at Google who are working on AI, and and all those people at Facebook who are working on AI, and all those people at Apple who I think are working on AR, and and all those people at at, at at Ford and Tesla who are working on cars and, and and at Google who are working on cars, they're not waiting around for the government. I mean this is all going to happen. So at some point, society through its arm, which is, happens to be called the government, has to figure out what some of the rules – And that, this is no pun intended. But what are the rules of the road here? Uh, and uh, some of it is actually going to be about roads but not all of it. So what are the rules of the road? And we don't have any. So we should have some, but that's not really tech. That's a side. That's a a consequence of the tech. Yeah, um, but the I think tech is, in, the tech is going to be amazing. Is what I'm saying.
0: I think the tech is going to be amazing, but for to, I think it, this is just one of those places in tech where the dependency is so high, right? It, it it almost doesn't exist anywhere else. Like you were saying, it's my favorite topic. Like I can rant about broadband policy and net neutrality for days, but people are going to sell internet access whether or not we get the right regulations in place and hopefully right. it's good, right? I think there's a there's a lot of questions around some of the ambient computing stuff beyond just I'm, I'm going to buy an Echo for my house that, you know, I think people aren't going to be even comfortable enough to buy the stuff unless the, the pr- right promises are in place. And I
1: think- That's a fabulous point you just made, which I wish I would have made in the column, <laughs> But and it is that there is a codependency there. Yeah. Um, and I think I've told the story before, and I don't – this is not meant in any way as a criticism because I think she's, she's um, being perfectly reasonable uh, uh, by doing this. But my wife mutes the echo in our kitchen. I said, why, did you, why do you mute it? I've explained to you that it only supposedly listens – it only starts recording what we're saying when it hears Alexa, the word Alexa. And she says, I don't, just don't believe that. And I said, well, it's you know, it's it's Amazon. You trust Amazon. You buy stuff from them all the time. As far as I know, they've never, uh, uh, you know, violated our privacy or anything. And she goes, I don't care. It's yeah. them. The, them with a capital T. And my wife is not anti-tech. She's not a Luddite. I mean, you're as likely to see her staring at her iPhone and going through Facebook. As you are likely to see her doing, reading, really doing almost anything else, and she reads all her books on a Kindle, and which is Amazon, and you know she does all these things. So it's not that she's a luddite; she just doesn't trust it. So if we're going to now say that everything around her is a computer of some kind, based in you know powered by the cloud, full of sensors, whatever, um, she may it may be necessary for to get people to trust that. For there to be some sense that there's a law governing it or a yeah. series of laws governing it. So in a way that hasn't been true up to the moment we're taping this podcast, um, it may, be, it may be, there may be a codependency
0: there. Yeah. What's the secret of Wellcroom Guy? The art of shaving. Founded in New York in 1996, the art of shaving has been helping guys look their best for over 20 years. The Art of Shaving has your total routine covered, whether you're shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. The Art of Shaving's award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. The four elements of the Perfect Shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. You start by prepping your skin with a signature pre-shave oil, then you create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied with a shave brush, you shave, then you replenish all that moisture with aftershave balm. You finish off the Perfect Shave with one of the Art of Shaving's five new fragrances. Sandalwood and Cypress, Oud Suede, Vetiver Citrone, Green Lavender, and Coriander and Cardamom. Each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products without ever having to worry. So, control at the listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using offer code WALT. To get that offer... Go to theartofshaving.com, use promo code WALT, and get 15% off your first order and free shipping. That's theartofshaving.com, promo code WALT. So this actually is a good transition to a thing I want to do. It's a game that we've played on this show, I think, multiple times. You mentioned the oligopoly, uh, the five companies that kind of run all of tech. Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook. Let's just go through them. What's, what, yeah, where where are they winning them. and what's their biggest sort of threat? We can start with Apple, of course. Well, App,
1: it's interesting you start with Apple because they're the biggest company. They're, they're, Wall Street loves them. So they're. when I say biggest, I guess I mean – well, I think their revenue – I could be wrong about this, but I think their revenues are the biggest and certainly their market capitalization, which is not a m- metric that I think means very much. Um, but – for whatever you, it's worth, their market capitalization is also the biggest. Um, Apple is also the company which, in my opinion, has been responsible for uh, most of the you know dazzling um, hardware innovations uh, in the last, say, 15, 20 years. Companies typically find themselves following what Apple has done, at least in, in hardware I think Apple has not succeeded in creating a new category of product Tim, since Steve Jobs really got too sick to run it, which happened maybe – I mean, he went up and down in his health. But I think the the period where he was, like, almost constantly too sick to do anything started at least a year before he died in 2011. Yeah. Um, and uh, – this is not a knock on Tim Cook. He's a smart guy. He's an upright guy in a lot of ways, and um, they're, they're clearly the financial results that have been produced under his leadership have been pretty spectacular. But uh, in terms of entering and dominating and changing the world with new categories of things, that hasn't happened in his in his version of Apple. The Apple Watch was his big hardware category. I'm not. Gonna call it a flop because I think in the world of smartwatches, um, they dominate. It's just the problem is the universe in which they dominate is unimportantly tiny, um, and it hasn't changed the world. It maybe has changed the world of people that wear smartwatches. I like mine, but it hasn't changed the world. This is that
0: city. is that the the level that Apple has to succeed on? Change the world.
1: Well, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I think that their record. And what people think about them and their own – and to be honest, their own uh, marketing about themselves uh, has put them on that level. Yeah. I don't think they can – I don't think they can do little incremental things like the touch bar in the MacBook Pro and say that's a big deal. I just don't think they can do that. Yeah, Somebody else might be able to do that, but I don't think they can do it anymore. And by the way, it applies to probably all the other people in that top five. Doing tiny little iterative things just gets – we just get snarky about it on the verge as we should. (laughs) And they have to do really bigger things than that. Um, We hold them to a higher standard, but especially Apple. So – and then the other thing that he did that I thought was was really quite well done, was not a hardware product, was Apple Pay. Apparently – According to some of our colleagues who live overseas, they do everything with it all day long in the UK and some other places. But as we all we know, who, those of us who live here in the United States, it's when it works, it's like magic, it's fabulous. But it just isn't, it just isn't a widely um, usable form of payment, uh, and that's a shame. They are they are working in at least three big areas. Um, uh, a, and I've already mentioned it, but, you know, AR and um, health and cars, we don't exactly know what they're doing in uh, in cars, whether it's just software or actual cars. Uh, and we don't know uh, everything about their health thing, although something has leaked out recently about them doing something which by itself, I think, could be a giant company, if it really is true, which is Um, Figuring out a way to read people's glucose levels um, without requiring uh, a needle uh, Mm -hmm. to draw some blood, which is then tested, uh, which is something that diabetics do all day and which if it was non-invasive, people could do before they even know they have diabetes and it could be very uh, beneficial for the health of the population and an enormous business. That's a rumor. I have no proof of it. Uh, I do know. I can tell you on this podcast something I don't think I've ever said before, which is that I talked about this with Steve Jobs before he died. He was interested in doing this, mm-hmm. and he said he was going to put a small group of people on it. And it, it came out of a conversation where I asked, was talking to him about his health, which was quite bad at the time, and he was talking to me about my health, and I happen to be a diabetic, and I mentioned it and. He got all excited and said, well, you know, it's interesting because I'm really interested in that and I'm going to put some people on it. I don't know if there's any connection between that yeah. and what we read in the last week or two and as a, as a rumor. Uh, I think Apple's biggest problem is uh, twofold. I think there's no Steve Jobs. It doesn't mean there's nobody else in the world who can do great things. But it does mean that you need somebody with a real – sense of product and the real ability to be an editor or a curator. And, um, you know, Johnny Ive, their great designer, who has, um, you know, irrefutably designed some of the most important products uh, of our time, is kind of the guy who's supposed to carry the whole load. And in the old days, he used to carry it with an editor who was named Steve Jobs, who had very good instincts as an editor. We both know, as journalists, and made this maybe an imperfect analogy, that uh, the best writer is never as good as when she is coupled with a good editor, uh, with good instincts. And um, I don't, I don't think that's the situation at Apple right now. And so that's that's a problem. And then and then um, the other problem has to do with artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'm no expert on it, but I do know that it helps if you have a lot of uh, pri- of data on yeah. people. And uh, Apple uh, has a thing called differential privacy, which is uh, a recognized scientific method for accumulating a bunch of data without actually invading people's privacy. I don't know if that's going to be as good as – Google and Facebook who know everything about you um, training computers and algorithms based on that. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, uh, We'll have to see. So that's Apple. If we're talking about um, Facebook, um, they've got, they've got, well, look, they've got they've got, they've got, they've got two million, two billion, I'm sorry, two billion users. Am I right about that? And even their Subsidiary properties are way up there. You you might know the numbers better than I, but Instagram, WhatsApp, um, these things have—they're
0: all—they're all over a billion. They're
1: all way up there. Uh, so that's great uh, for them. I wonder how much runway they have after that. How much ceiling there is beyond that? There are seven billion people on Earth, but a lot of them are desperately poor and don't have access to the internet. Um, this is one reason that Mark Zuckerberg, uh, when he's not milking cows and having dinner with people all around the country and saying, no, I'm not running for office. He's not doing those things. He's trying to figure out a way to bring internet to the poor parts of the world. And, um, you know, I, I just don't know what the ceiling is on the kinds of things they're doing. And lately, rather than really innovating, in my opinion, they've been kind of crapping up their mobile app with lots of strange things that mostly are uh, features lifted from Snapchat. Yeah. Um,
0: Instagram in particular.
1: But if you want to watch anything at Facebook, I would watch Building 8, which is the province of a woman named Regina Dugan, who I think we've talked about before. She used to run DARPA. She was the first woman to run DARPA. She used to run uh, research at Motorola and then Google and Somebody I know, and I think she's very smart. And she jumped to Facebook, and she's a hardware engineer primarily. And I don't know, Facebook's not a hardware company, right, Eli? <laughs> not.
0: I mean, not really. They've tried. It's never gone well.
1: Well, what have they tried? Really, they, they made a they, phone with HTC. They didn't really make a phone. That's true. They made. They made the software. They made a, Somebody else made a phone, and they partnered with them to make the launcher the whole basic interface of the phone be Facebook or a form of Facebook. And but Regina Dugan, she does I mean, certainly there's software involved in it, but but she's well known for doing hardware. I mean the last thing she did, which didn't wound up not going anywhere, but it was the last research project she did was a modular smartphone at at Google. And she did various things at, at Motorola. And um, I don't know what's going on in Building 8, but whatever it is, that could be the future of Facebook.
0: By the way, I pulled is, the numbers. Instagram, 700 million active yeah. users. WhatsApp is what I was thinking of. They're, way, they're up over 1.2 billion.
1: Wow. So with Facebook, I'd just say the downside could be that they don't have a lot of ceiling and that I think desperately adding features, uh, they seem to be desperately adding features right now that I'm not sure will all pan out.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, they're afraid of Snapchat, and they're adding features all over the place to keep it away, and it's yeah, working. And it's working for Instagram, right? It's
1: working for Instagram. It may not be working for main Facebook, yeah. and um, and then, but, but but on the kind of deliciously mysterious side, I'd watch Building Eight. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, I think Microsoft is. You know, if we look back at the sweep of
0: everything. Mm-hmm. They're Wait, can we real quick? Do you know what I think yeah. Facebook's biggest problem is? Oh, I, I'd love to know. They're not loved. I think I, I've. Yeah,
1: I think people love point.
0: Instagram. I love Instagram. I think it's a great product. When I meet the people who run Instagram, they seem totally focused on making sure that product is beloved, uh, and the experiences people have in it are great. Mark Zuckerberg, he appears to be on some sort of political roadshow. I don't know that he understands that people don't, that people fear Facebook as much as they might enjoy using it. And I think they've got to solve that problem if they want to do things that aren't just buying other people's apps and you know putting them in the face. Of-
1: no, I think that's absolutely right. If you could quantify in dollar numbers the love and the emotional bond that people feel toward Apple and have still felt toward Apple and that gives – I mean I guess in accounting they call it goodwill but that doesn't begin to cover it I don't think in my mind. That, that gives them the room to not – have done anything fabulous in a while, and people still feel like attached things that have their logo on it. I don't know how, how many billions or tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars it would amount to if you could quantify that. It's something you have to earn, but once you earn it, it's pretty hard to lose it um, unless you do something heinous. Um, and, and so you, that's a great point. Main Facebook, which is still, I think, the engine that drives that company, is not loved. And maybe if something came out of Building 8 that was so amazing in terms of this future of ambient computing in one or the other vectors of ambient computing, it would change things. I don't know.
0: Yeah. On to Microsoft.
1: I'm on to Microsoft. So Microsoft, if you look at the history of everything, has been an enormously important player. Um, And yet, um, I think, and and I do think Sachin and Della, the, I think, still relatively new, it's fair to say relatively new CEO, has um, stabilized what they're all about to some extent, but I hate to say it, I, I would only say to some extent. I don't personally understand, I do understand this. I understand that if they say, okay, we know that we can't live forever on windows and office windows is still the dominant pc operating system but pc's are sales of pc's uh, are falling uh, have fallen for a long time now or been flat depending on which quarter you're talking about but nobody there's been no robust growth anymore and that's where windows installations or windows is now free and it used to be a big uh pretty pricey item, right, to buy a new Mm -hmm. uh, version of Windows. And there were all these complicated things. There were upgrade versions and full versions and crazy things, premium versions, home versions. They can't live off that. They can't live off Office. A lot of people, like, take the two of us. When we write, if I write my columns and you edit them, or sometimes you say to me, can you look at this that I've written? It's all in Google Docs. It's not. In, I mean, and actually, Microsoft has something like Google Docs, but you don't even think about it. Yeah, um, that's a big problem for Office. It may, it may, it may not be. It, it, you know, it may not occur to people in some big companies where it's enforced as a rule that you use Excel or Word or PowerPoint or something. But for a lot of uh, the faster moving parts of the economy, it's Google Apps or some. Slack or something else that, that is replacing it. So Sacha has said, we're going to make cool software that will spread the Microsoft brand and gospel and feelings, good feelings, love, if you will. They've never been loved either, to be honest, uh, on other people's platforms. And if you go to your Apple App Store or your Google Play Store, you'll find a zillion Microsoft things there. I get that. And I get his other emphasis on the cloud, which I think is his other big thing. Next to Amazon, I don't follow this well enough to know who's bigger. But Microsoft is in that race with Amazon and uh, maybe Google uh, to provide cloud services to people. And those are strengths, and they can't be ignored. The part of Microsoft that I don't understand very well is this Surface hardware line. And when I say that, I don't mean to knock it. I think these are generally high-quality products. I think there's a lot of passion behind them. I think the last uh, the that that um, big uh, Surface desktop they announced was genuinely exciting. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, I think sales are off 25 percent year to year in the Surface business, which was never a very big business to begin with. And I don't entirely understand why they're doing that. I don't see how that fits with the rest of Microsoft.
0: I, I uh, think their goal is to push the OEMs to do better stuff, and I think if maybe, that's the metric, but... the OEMs are definitely doing better stuff.
1: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I do think Microsoft has a role to play in this ambient computing thing. I think they're on it, onto it. They're to borrow a term from an entirely different meaning. I think they're woke to it. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs>
0: In oh, fact, man. the first place—definitely <laughs> not the meeting.
1: Definitely not the meeting, <laughs> not the meaning, but you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. <laughs> um, I think—I mean—I'll tell you the very first place I ever heard anybody reference—they didn't use the word ambient, but reference what I'm calling ambient computing—and not just me. I repeat, I did not claiming to invent that term. Uh, was at Microsoft. It was um, a guy named Craig Mundy who was one of their well-known executives for years, who I forgot his, what his role was at the time. I had this particular meeting with him, uh, but he was talking about all the research they do. In Microsoft. People may not know this, but Microsoft has a very formidable research division. The problem is a lot of the research hasn't made it into products. Um, they have a lot of PhDs and people doing interesting things. And he said, you know, the room is gonna be a computer. On their, This must've been yeah. 10, 15 uh, years ago. Microsoft's been so. saying this forever. Yeah. And so I think they're gonna be there in this next wave. They missed mobile, which is, I wanna repeat that, they missed mobile. <laughs> it's just like, as if the la- it's like the lost decade yeah. uh, uh, of Steve Ballmer. That could be the title of a book, The Lost Decade of Steve Ballmer. And they missed mobile, they miss search, they tried on both those things too late and too little in both cases. It wasn't that Windows uh, uh, phone was bad and it wasn't that Bing was bad, actually, at its better moments. It was just that it was too little, too late. Um, they're not, They're going to try with every ounce of strength they have and every dollar they have to not miss whatever's next. And so they're going to be a player. And they have HoloLens lens they're on the mixed reality thing in a big way. I think there are going to be a whole bunch of people who are going to make HoloLens-based systems, just like there are a bunch of people who are going to make Google Daydream-based VR systems. So Microsoft's a player. I just don't entirely understand how it all comes together for them. Uh, Google is it seems to be firing on all these fronts. It gets... The whole change, it's very upfront about it. Last year at Google I.O., which is their big developer conference, they showed a slide, which they repeated this year as a kind of callback to last year, which showed mobile first, which had been their kind of mantra for a while, morphing into AI first. Um, They also admit that this is a 10-year thing, and they're just at the beginning of it, but they brought out the Google Home they were in a hardware company for a long time, and they've, you know, they've done uh, some hardware: the Google Pixel, the Google Home. I think the Chromebook concept in laptops has finally taken off. Although I would note that if Trump's budget ever passed, there wouldn't be any money in the schools <laughs> to buy them. Uh, and so I just think I think Google is positioning itself to do everything it takes to be to be in the new world that I talk about in this column and and the only problem is that they're doing it in a way I I can't decide do you think Google is loved
0: I do uh, you know I, maybe I have I have a bad data set here but I look at our coverage on the verge and how our community responds to these companies I think obviously Apple is loved I think Microsoft has a tremendous amount of loyalty from the people who like their and use their products. Um, and I think people love Google. I think the thing that Android was able to do for mobile, for you know enthusiasts and for people who didn't want to buy Apple stuff, was really important and strong. And then the thing that Google lets everybody do, which is just find information, yeah. um, is incredible. And I think the amount of value from those two things alone, which are not small things, but people love Google. They, they think that Google you know google is an idealistic company i think it comes through they step on their own foot a lot no doubt um just like every company steps on their own foot a lot but um you know i, I don't know. My, my sense is that people trust google they want to believe in what google's doing because google has See, a deal. i
1: disagree i think people i think people like google mm-hmm. and depend on google some people love it you know you may be working off you may indeed be working off
0: it's a pretty self-selecting a somewhat group. skewed
1: yeah. data set. I'm
0: not, I'm not going to um, say it's scientific.
1: But there are lots of people that love their Android phones. Um, I don't know if they associate it with Google. I'll put it
0: this way. I don't see communities – communities obviously form on Facebook. But enthusiast communities forming around Google products exist, right? Right, as they, do communities with, as they do with Apple. And, yeah. As they do with Microsoft. I I just don't see the group of Facebook enthusiasts. No, like no, no, that. no, you no. Know, I'm like, not
1: disagreeing with you at all yeah. about Facebook. I'm just trying to figure out Google. Yeah. I think Google's I, – I don't – you said people trust Google, and I don't think people trust Google entirely. I think people worry about Google and how much it knows about them. And I think that, by the way, this isn't just old people. I think that we now can settle that that trope that it was only old people who cared about privacy. I think yeah. there's <laughs> no, enough I, I, research been done that showed that even, even teenagers care about privacy. And so um, – To the extent people associate Google with invading your privacy, it's not a good thing. And Google – I'm sure Google would fight some of the laws we talked about a while back in this podcast. But those laws, if they are something they can live with, might actually be a benefit to Google because it might take away the thing that makes people not trust them.
0: Yeah. I I do think it's a balance, right? If there's a danger for Google, it's that they they will screw up in the amount of goodwill that they have. Will go away uh, and their opportunities to screw up because of how much data co- they collect and how much they rely on that data to run their products uh, are, are much higher than, than other people I would right. also say that their other biggest danger is that as they try to become a hardware maker they, they have just not done a tremendously good job of it yet no and, um, and, and they are their products are all mediated by other people's products so that they're they're in a little bit of a box there
1: and then finally we come to Amazon and I think people do absolutely love Amazon. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I, there may not be. I don't know if there are enthusiast communities built around it the way that there are around Apple or, or um, Google, but uh, I mean Android in particular. But just masses of normal people adore Amazon. They adore what Amazon has done for them in retail. Uh, they love being able to get Everything from, you know, dishwasher detergent to slippers to, I don't know, snowblowers to whatever delivered almost instantly and magically by Amazon. Jeff Bezos is highly thought of. And that's – by the way, that's very important. It's very important to have – and this is something Google doesn't quite have. I happen to personally be extremely fond of and, and, and high on Sundar Pichai who runs Google, but I don't think he has a – A a, a big public profile. I think Jeff Bezos um, has the kind of public profile that Steve Jobs had or is on his way to having that. I think he does probably already. And I don't know that you can discount that. That's an important thing. People admire him, they admire Amazon. It's a part of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, it does know a lot about what you bought from Amazon, but it doesn't. People don't feel creeped out by Amazon, like they sometimes do about Google and Facebook. So I think that there's colossal goodwill there. I think the Echo has been a success. So if you're talking about ambient computing in its very early stages, and it is its early stages because you still have to have a device that you can see and say magic words to it that will make it work. Otherwise, it won't work. Same with Google Home. Same if the rumors are true and Apple brings out one of these things. These are necessary uh, on the road to ambient computing, but they're not really ambient because there just is a thing there that you na- need to do some unnatural thing to control and get something out of. And as often as not, you're disappointed. But people are happy that Amazon, the company they already like, has done this sort of cool next thing. And I'm not just talking about nerds. I'm talking about everybody. Yeah, um, The sales have not been – you know, Fantastic. I pointed out in the column that while Amazon doesn't release figures, most of the third-party figures show that in 2016, way fewer than 10 million Echos were sold. I'm sure that will go up this year. But as a point of comparison, even in what was considered a relatively weak quarter, Apple sold 50 million much more expensive iPhones in 90 days – Whereas we're talking about, I think it was 5.46 million Echoes last year in the whole year. And they don't cost anywhere near what an iPhone does. So there's a – and I don't know what Google Home sales have been, but I'll bet they've been lower than the Echo. Yeah. So um, you know, there's a ways for those things to go. When
0: you say lower than the iPhone, they were – Echo Dots were on sale last night for $40. Like they – There's a world in which Amazon just starts giving away for free. Like you can, you can see. Yeah, well, that may be the right thing to
1: do. I mean, that that really may be the right thing to do.
0: Like, I definitely impulse bought an Echo last night because I opened the Amazon app and it was like,
1: sure, bought a dot.
0: I bought a dot. I was like, why not? I'll just have another one. Um, Yeah,
1: (laughs) I'll have another one. (laughs) I'm gonna Uh, miss talking to you on these podcasts. I have a bottle of water here that you can have for twenty nine cents, and I've only drunk about a third of it, so it's pretty good. It's a good deal. Why not? So uh, you know, I think Amazon. Uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, at an interview I was fortunate enough to do with him last year, said they had a thousand people working on uh, Alexa and the Echo at that time, and it certainly maybe two or three thousand now. I don't know. He's very serious about it they have a head start. They have a lot of third parties attached to it. I think they actually, their biggest problem is that not only is the echo in all of its forms, and the latest one has a screen and is called the echo show, but not only is the echo in all of its forms still a thing you have to manage and learn about, but I don't think the third party skills are being used very much because you have to, there's a concatenation of a whole bunch of magic words you have to say to enable most of them, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. So um, yeah, I think each of the each of these big fives, big five companies has its own uh, pluses and minuses. But the companies that fascinate me are the ones we've never heard of who, as in every era of personal computing and personal technology, There's been somebody that's come up with something that, um, you know, suddenly it's like Facebook is a great example. uh, They come up with something and who knows, all of a sudden, they're the big deal. I mean, this is what happened with Apple in the 70s and the early 80s. Nobody, I mean, they were nothing. Yeah. And then they became something. Microsoft started, um, I think, on the second floor of some sort of strip mall in Albuquerque. Um, you know I'm about to retire when I remind you of that story, but I mean, <laughs> just don't forget that these Colossuses started not very long ago, not 150 years ago, but 40 years ago or 35 years ago, and they, you know, Google Incorporated in 1998. Yeah, and you can't imagine a world without Google. It's 2017. 1998 is when they incorporated. And I don't remember when Facebook incorporated, but I think it was later than that, right? Yeah. So Facebook came uh,
0: out I signed up for Facebook in like 2004, and that was among, amongst its first years.
1: Yeah. So I just think tech continues to deliver benefits. And I also think that, you know our, our, our friend Steve Case uh, or my friend I think he's your friend, but he's my friend um, who started AOL. And who certainly made some mistakes along the way, but also did some great things uh, uh, at other points in his career. Uh, he's, his big thing is called the rise of the rest. He's trying to get tech uh, uh, spread way beyond Silicon Valley to all kinds of other places in the United States. And um, that's going to be helpful, too. Yeah. That's going to be helpful, too. So I am leaving, but tech is not leaving. And you are not leaving and Dieter Bone is not leaving and all the other many – and there are many fine people whose names we don't mention here every week at The Verge are not leaving. And all the wonderful people at Recode and the rest of Vox Media are not leaving. And so the listeners are in good hands.
0: I think so. And we're way over time here, but we have one more episode with you, Walt. This is 75, but that one is special.
1: Right. That will be special. June 9th,
0: 6 p.m., the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Uh, all the listeners are invited to come. We, the room you know, will get full up, but we'll have a post on the site, so you can come get tickets, you can come see us. You can hang out with Walt. I know everybody wants to do that. I will tell you, I get to do it once a week, or I've gotten to do it once a week for these two years. It has been uh, an amazing honor and privilege. It's the most fun I have every week. But now you can do it. You can come hang out with us. Uh, again, June 9th. Two weeks from now. So, well, next week is a code conference. You got – of all of the things that you have done in your career, starting first the D conference and then the code conference, right at the top of the list. Uh, you want to talk about code real quick? You want sure. to say what's happening next so, week?
1: So ever since 2003, my friend and, and business partner, Kara Swisher, who is the executive editor of our sister site, Recode, and I have been putting on what I will just – you know, in my biased way, say, is the finest conference in tech and media. Uh, it was called the D Conference. Now it's called the Code Conference. Same, essentially the same thing. We have it at a fancy resort near L.A. It starts Tuesday of next week. And we have uh, a wide range of people from tech, from media, and from politics and elsewhere this year. We have, for instance, uh, Brian Krasanek, the head of Intel. We have Andy Rubin, the father of Android, who has a new company and new things that he's going to talk about, some of them for the first time at the Code Conference next week. We have um, from uh, media, we have uh, Reed Hastings, the head of Netflix. We have Jill Soloway, who did the show Transparent on Amazon. This is all because tech has has. T- has Become the driving force in media, in politics. We have Hillary Clinton. Wow, uh, we That's have a big one. we have she's a huge uh, get as we like to say in the in the, in the events <laughs> business and sh- in showbiz. And um, you know she's uh, obviously come out of the woods and is is probably going to have a lot to say about where the country and the world stand right now. We have a conservative Republican, former CIA agent named Evan McMullen who ran in the Republican primaries, uh, particularly strong in his home state of Utah, and he'll be appearing. Uh, we have Cecile Richards, the head of Planned Parenthood. We have just a whole bunch of interesting stuff to stimulate people uh, at the Code conference. and I, have foolishly probably agreed to pressure from Kara and <laughs> Peter Kafka to uh, do something I've never done at, a, at a, one of our conferences, which is to allow a tech executive, uh, whose name we're keeping secret for the moment, to interview me on stage because I'm retiring. This is what happens when you retire, <laughs> things like
0: the tables strange,
1: bizarre things like this. So, um <laughs> if that if you consider that a highlight that will be happening at oh, the that's code conference be a highlight. Too. but you know so we have this podcast and the column uh, uh, that are that are happening this week and then we have the code conference next week and then we have uh, the, the apple's annual WWDC developers conference uh, immediately thereafter and then we have the special edition uh, bonus with Dieter Bone control walt Elite at the School of Visual Arts in New York on at 6 p.m. on June 9th
0: yeah going out with and, the bang walt.
1: and then i'm and then i'm you will probably still see me on twitter and facebook and <laughs> neeli has threatened once in a while to ask me to do something for the verge and so that could happen you never
0: know yeah, I think we'll give you a break, and then I'm going to start relentlessly pestering you to, <laughs> to drop in on, our, on the Vertrast and other shows. Um, well, it's like, I don't want to end it, but I think that we should. We've gone way over, yeah. we have one left to do, but I will say, uh, this show has been an incredible, an incredible experience for me to do. I know we have many, many listeners. We, I love the fact that our listeners have gotten to connect with Walt in a new way. I love that you send us comments and feedback on Twitter. This is usually where I ask for new intros, but we're done. So <laughs> send us your tweets. We do have one special live edition left, so send us some intros. Maybe we'll try to use them on stage. Uh, but it has been an incredible honor to talk to you every week, Walt. It's been super fun. Um, I'm really happy that the Verge audience and the Verge listeners got to know you in a new way, uh, and I just can't imagine this of when – when Vox Media first bought Recode, I said to Walt, I'm going to make you do a podcast with me. And he gave me the side eye and said, okay. And it has turned out better than I even imagined when I demanded and promised Walt that it would go well. Uh, and it's it's all because of you, man. And I, I just really thank you for it.
1: No, it's actually all because of you. And, and I know this sounds stupid, but it's all, <laughs> you say it's because of me, I say it's because of you, but it really is because <laughs> of you. You promised me that you know, even though I was already quite well known and all that kind of stuff, that I would have a fun and different and rewarding and enriching experience working at The Verge. And all of that has been true and even more than I expected by far. And the highlight in some ways has been this podcast where, um, you know, I've been able to have conversations with somebody who uh, is considerably younger than me, listeners, if you haven't figured this out, <laughs> but who knows just a ton. And um, I, I can't think of a string of conversations I've been able to have in private, let alone in public like this, with somebody which have been as stimulating and as fun as Control-Walt-to-Lead has proven to be. So thank you, Neelai, for that.
0: Well, thank you, Matt. And thank you to all of our listeners uh, again, it's starting a new podcast, not an easy thing. Uh, and the immediate just enthusiasm and support we've gotten from all of you for this show over the past couple of years has been just tremendous. So we're going to sign off. There's other stuff to listen to. Dieter and I host The Vergecast every week. Kara Swisher is going to keep doing Recode, Decode. Peter Kafka is going to keep doing Recode Media. Lauren Good's going to keep doing Too Embarrassed to Ask. You can find all that on the iTunes store. Go look for it. We have, like I said, one more show, June 9th, live, If you can make it out, we would love to have you. We'd love to see you. Love to meet all the people who listen to us every week. So come for that. We'll put that up on, you know, that'll be in the feed too. So if you miss it, don't worry. You'll get to listen to it. But if you can, we'd love to see you. And that is it. That is the 75th and final recorded episode of Control-Alt-Delete. We'll we'll see see you in a week on June 9th. Thanks, Walt. Thanks, Neela.